In these seminars, we often uh, end up talking about the BBC because of uh, its uh, unique position in uh, Britain and British media and British journalism and also internationally in terms of international journalism as well and it, uh, it's a very uh, big and important uh, uh, force wherever you may stand on the many issues that surround the BBC uh, it undoubtedly matters in both UK and international journalism and therefore it's a great pleasure to introduce um, this afternoon's guest speaker who is uh, a colleague of mine in a number of ways so he's a colleague of mine at Cardiff University where he's also a professor of journalism currently. He's a former uh, editor-in-chief of ITN, the independent television news provider. He was a very distinguished editor of Channel 4 News uh, and of Newsnight on the BBC. Uh, and with particular relevance to this afternoon's talk, he's a former governor and trustee of the BBC. So uh, Richard Tate is going to take us through uh, his take on some of the challenges currently facing the BBC, some of the issues it's faced in the recent past, <coughs> and cast ahead a little way into the future. Richard. Thank you, Richard. Good afternoon, everybody. I made the title of this um, talk BBC Journalism Future Uncertain, because I think uh, the BBC is facing uh, one of the most uncertain times uh, in its recent history. If you look at the BBC today, you'd say, well, what's the problem? It's got an income of £3.7 billion, pounds, a huge amount of money. Pretty well guaranteed, unlike commercial broadcasters, it doesn't have to go out and earn that money. It just comes in through the license fee. It's got 18,000 employees, around 8,000 of them work in news, and that's not just uh, television news and current affairs, it's also the regions of the world news. It reaches 97% of adults in the UK every week, which is a phenomenal figure. And the global audience for its uh, international services primarily BBC World News, but also BBC Worldwide, is 308 million. And they're aiming to try and get that up to 500 million over the next period of the Charter. So on the face of it, a very powerful, well-resourced, well-staffed organisation with fantastic reach in the UK and an amazing international profile. But I think things are not as they seem because I think the BBC today is, is in a crisis. Its charter, which is its 10-year um, constitution, is up for renewal. It's under tremendous financial pressure as a result of a deal it did with the government in July. And the changes that are being discussed about the way in which the BBC should be run in future could threaten its independence. And what makes the BBC different from most public service broadcasters and state broadcasters around the world is it has preserved independence from politicians. And that means the future of BBC journalism is in crisis as well, because without the BBC's journalism, there isn't really much in the BBC um, worth preserving. <laughs> um, it is essentially a great journalistic institution. Most of the other things that it provides can be provided by other providers. But the BBC's journalistic impact is unique. When I joined the BBC board in 2004, 2005, this is what the then Labour government said they were going to achieve. This is the title of the green paper where the government set out its plans for BBC in 2005. So we're 10 years back from the process we're in at present. And they said it would be a strong BBC independent government. <coughs> well, it hasn't turned out like that. Uh, when I joined in 2005, this rather fuzzy picture uh, shows this rather fuzzy group of people. Uh, the governors were the 
constitutional defense of the BBC against politicians. That's what they're there to do. They didn't do the job perfectly, perfectly. They didn't always do it very well. They were in many ways a flawed institution. They made a lot of mistakes. But at least they were there and they knew that their job was to try and provide a barrier between the BBC program makers and the political and commercial interests that wanted to try and influence it. Uh, they were abolished in 2006 as part of Charter Renew. And they were replaced with another body I worked on called the BBC Trust, um, which is in itself about to be abolished by the next um, process of Charter Renew. Uh, BBC Trust has not had a happy history, and I'll talk in more detail about that later on. But so you had one of the main pillars of BBC independence, its constitution, has now been changed twice in the last 10 years, is going to be changed for a third time this decade. Secondly, the BBC was independent because the money came from TV licenses. Everybody in Britain who had a television set had to buy a license. That license fee had been linked for many years to RPI, Retail Price Index, to inflation. In some years it was more than that. This gave the BBC a cushion of financial um, buoyancy and strength which helped it expand its services. And the license fee payers, the general public, understood that the license fee paid specifically for the services they got from the BBC. And that link was an important pillar of BBC independence. It was not like taxpayers saying, well, I pay my taxes and I get these things back. People knew that they had a relationship with BBC, they paid their license, they got their services. That link, too, has been broken, and the buoyancy of the license fee has also uh, long become history. In 2006 and 2010, Gordon Brown and George Osborne negotiated deals with the BBC which broke the link with inflation. Um, Gordon Brown set the BBC licence fee according to his own forecast of inflation, which you'll be surprised to hear turned out to be rather optimistic. So the BBC ended up with less than inflation uh, for the four years that it ran. Um, George Osborne just froze the licence fee, so the BBC's had a swallow inflation for the last five to six years. And the result of that, together with the expansion of the rest of television, with the growth you'll know about, Google, Netflix, um, international players who weren't there 10, 15 years ago, is the BBC's share of total TV revenue in the UK has plummeted. It's not so long ago that it was 25-30%. It's now down to about 17, and by 2021 it'll be down to 15, and by the end of this charter, this next 10-year next period, it'll probably be down to about 12%. So in terms of BBC's scale in relationship to the market as a whole, it's a pretty sharp decline. And on top of that, as well as freezing and cutting the license fee, the governments have started doing something called top slicing, which means they take some of the license fee and say, well, we won't spend it on BBC services, we'll spend other things that we'd like you to spend it on. They all tend to be things that the government was already paying for themselves, so it's simply a way of transferring uh, public expenditure from the government's tab to the license fee. And that again is undermining people's belief in the license fee because people used to think the license fee was paying for BBC One, BBC Two, etc., Radio Four. Now it's paying for a whole range of other things, many of which are not entirely obviously linked uh, to the BBC. S4C is a very good channel, it's in Welsh, it's only uh, viewable in Wales except on satellite, I guess you can watch it everywhere, but it's very much a minority channel and the BBC is now paying for it. Uh, rural broadband. Um, we decided we needed to sp uh, build broadband out into rural areas. 150 million is what it's going to cost, and the BBC license fee is paying for it. 
The BBC World Service used to be paid for by the Foreign Office as part of British foreign policy. It's now paid for out of the licence fee. But local TV, um, I don't know if anyone watched That's Oxford, or anyone who goes to London watches London Live, not many people do, but there's £50 million of licence fee payer money uh, subsidising the local TV experiment. And the deal that George Osborne did in 2015, in, 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 June of the, in July of this year, um, takes a biscuit. He put on the BBC's tab free television licenses for the over 75. There's an over 75 being jolly pleased at the prospect of uh, free television. Um, the rest of us shouldn't be so pleased because that's going to cost the BBC £750 million when it's finally fully implemented. So that means a fifth of the TV licence fee is spent subsidising 75-year-old pensioners, many of whom, I suspect, could happily pay £145.50 themselves. Um, but this is a huge hole in the BBC's finances going forward. So, is the BBC in crisis? Well, Rona Fairhead, the new chair, Tony Hall, uh, the new um, director general, are facing four real problems. <coughs> They're facing the political pressure we've talked about, they're facing the process of charter renewal where everything is up for discussion and debate. They're facing a lot of pressure from commercial competition, which is rather fed up with the BBC and wants to see changes. And they're facing the fallout of the self-inflicted wounds of some quite serious management and governance mistakes the BBC has made in the past, most notably in 2012 and 2013. The third pillar of the BBC's independence was that the BBC's journalism was self-regulated. In other words, if you didn't like a BBC programme, you could play to the BBC and they were the final arbiter of it. Now, there are problems with that position, um, and I'll talk to them later about how I don't think it's necessarily the end of the world that, that disappears, but it should be noted that there are no proposals in the future that will allow the BBC to the final arbiter of whether its journalism is impartial and accurate. And these, of course, are the two key criteria by which BBC journalism is judged. The process of charter renewal will be run by this man, John Whittingdale, um, a very well-informed minister. He was chair of the Culture, Media and Sport Committee for 10 years. He understands the turf very well. He is, on his own um, description, a free marketeer. And he has said that he wants to have review of, as you put it, the scale and scope of the BBC. So it's not a given the BBC will come out of this process with the same size and same range of services that they have at present. And the commercial competition is lobbying for the BBC to do less. Some of you may know this is Will I Am. He is the star of a programme called The Voice, which is the BBC's top-rated show on a Saturday night in the spring. Um, ITV and others have lobbied successfully against the BBC continuing to have um, this imported um, format. And the BBC has now announced, um, I think it's not entirely coincidental in this charter renewal year, that they will not compete for the rights to show the voice from next year onwards. So they're withdrawing and therefore the voice will probably go to ITV. And that's a sign of how commercial pressure can force the BBC to change its policy in something it probably would have preferred to have stayed with the voice um, had it not been for the process they're under. And there are, other, there are other pinch points we'll talk about later about news. And then there are the self-inflicted wounds. I mean, Rona and Tony have taken over an organisation that in 2012 and 2013 had the most horrendous series of managerial crises. Uh, this is George Entwistle, appointed by uh, Lord Patton. Um, as Director General in 2012, 54 days later, this is why. 
chief and ultimately responsible for all content. And in light of the unacceptable journalistic standards of the Newsnight film broadcast on Friday 2nd November, I have decided that the honourable thing to do is to step down from the post of Director General. When appointed to the role, with 23 years experience as a producer and leader at the BBC, I was confident the trustees had chosen the best candidate for the post and the right person to tackle the challenges and opportunities ahead. However, the wholly exceptional events of the past few weeks have led me to conclude that the BBC should appoint a new leader. To have been the Director General of the BBC, even for a short period, and in the most challenging of circumstances, has been a great honour. While there is understandable public concern over a number of issues well covered in the media, which I'm confident will be addressed by the review process, we must not lose sight of the fact that the BBC is full of people of the greatest talent and the highest integrity. That's what will continue to make it the finest broadcaster in the world. Well, that disaster not only did for George Entwistle, it also did for the BBC Trust, um, which was the organisation which was in charge of um, the BBC's governance. Uh, the BBC Trust was always a rather flawed structure. I worked for it for four years. There was always a confusion of responsibilities, which was built into its constitution. Um, the actual charter which set it up said that the BBC Trust and the BBC Management should never act together. In other words, the BBC Trust was like a supervisory board and BBC Management was the management board. But he was confused by the fact that the chair of the Trust was able to call him or herself the chair of the BBC. So you had two chairs. You had the chairman of the Trust and then you had the chairman of the executive board who ran the BBC, who was the director general. To add the confusion, the Trust had the right to hire and fire the DG. How did we end up with this Horlicks of an arrangement? Um, you, it takes more than 20 minutes to explain, but essentially what happened in 2005 was the government was advised either to continue with the Board of Governors or to bring in a unitary board, an external regulator, and it decided to do neither, and it came up with an idea of its own called the Trust, which had not been tested by anybody, and, and sadly didn't... Um, uh, didn't do the job. And just a final nail in the coffin of the old management structure, this was the executive payoff scandal in 2013. Uh, the row of people, um, Mark Thompson, Director General, Marcus Aegis, the Senior Non-Executive Director, Sir Michael Lyons, the Chair, Nicholas Crowell, the Director of the Trust, Lucy Adams, BBC Director of Human Resources, Lord Patton, the Chair at that point, and Anthony Fry, the trustee responsible for the money, and they were hammered by the Public Accounts Committee for the way in which they had failed properly to supervise a series of executive payoffs which had gone beyond the contractual uh, minimum which had been paid. And that scandal in the end was the end of the current constitutional arrangement. So for the last two years, the BBC has really been limping on with a governance structure which is not going to last very much longer. And that's a bad position to be in when you're trying to negotiate your future and you're also trying to run a news organisation asking tough questions of the politicians. So my guess is that from 2017 onwards, there'll be this structure. You'll have two bodies. You've got Broadcasting House on the left. You've got the Ofcom logo on the right. You'll have 
a unitary board sitting in the um, in, in Broadcasting House, which will have a non-executive chairman, a majority of non-executive directors, it'll have the director general and the heads of the main programme departments on it, and there'll be a separate regulator who's either going to be Ofcom itself, which is, as you probably know, the commercial <coughs> regulator of the media industry, but doesn't currently regulate the BBC very much, only one or two areas. Or there might be a separate regulator called rather ugly Offbeam, which would be a separate institution that would check that the BBC management is doing what they promised to do. Just like you have regulators for um, uh, utilities and other big industries, they have a regulator that checks that the management is doing what it's promised to do and holds it to account for makes mistakes. So that's where we're going to end up with. The issue, of course, is how do you avoid that <coughs> undermining the BBC's independence? You've had so many changes in the last 10 years. Uh, people at the BBC and people outside could be forgiven for being a bit seasick about the changes. The danger, in my mind, is that this unitary board gets packed with um, politici politically acceptable people or people of one view. Um, the unity board has to represent a wide range of political, cultural and economic views and a wide range of attitudes and, 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 and social groups in, in, in society. So just changing the structure isn't going to solve the problem. You've got to have to have the right people in those boards. And the reason George Entwistle was going was because of a terrible mess the BBC had made about this man. Most of you know about him, but for those who don't, Jimmy Savile was probably the BBC's best-known children's and popular entertainer for about 20 or 30 years. He was a disc jockey. He ran uh, a series of children's programmes. He was enormously popular. Uh, he was very acceptable in royal circles and in political circles. He was also a serial paedophile um, and a rapist, and he may have abused as many as a thousand children um, in, who he met in, uh, in his BBC work as well as raping and abusing patients at hospitals where he was pretending to be a charity worker. It's a horrendous story. Nobody unmasked him until after he was dead. But ironically, I'm just going to show you, one BBC journalist in 2000, long before all these terrible things happened, nearly got there. Now, when you see this, you've got the hindsight, you know the man is a predatory paedophile. But just watch this and just think whether some journalist might have said, oh, I wonder about that. Okay. Louis Theroux is a feature, feature journalist whose habit is to go and live with people and make friends with them and have a very sort of uh, informal relationship with them and in the, at the same time try and sort of tease out what they really like. So this is what he did with Jimmy Savile. Sorry. Let's go back. Time together, and as we headed back to Leeds, it was clear that Jimmy was pleased about the press coverage of his broken ankle. But it struck me that his relationship with the press hasn't always been a happy one. So, wh why do you say in interviews that you hate children when I've seen you with kids and um, you clearly enjoy their company and you have a good rapport with them? Right. Obviously, I don't hate them. That's yeah. So, why would you say that then? Because we live in a very funny world. And it's easy for me as a single man to say, I don't like children, because that puts a lot of salacious tabloid people off the hunt. Are you basically saying that so tabloids don't, you know, pursue this whole uh, is he, isn't he a paedophile yes. line, basically? Yes, yes. All right. 
How do they know whether I am or not? How does anybody know whether I am? Nobody knows whether I am or not. I know I'm not. So I can tell you from experience that the easy way of doing it when they say, oh, you're all them children, you're not fixing. So yeah, hey, so. Yeah, to me that sounds more sort of suspicious in a way. That's my policy, that's the way it goes. Really? That's what I do. And it's worked a dream. Has it worked? A dream. What? <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Why, why have you said in interviews that you don't have emotions? Because it's easier. It's easier. Say so got lost and then you got to explain it for two hours. <laughs> the truth is, I'm very good at masking them. Sarah died in 2011, and a Newsnight team started an investigation into his past. A witness came forward who'd been abused in a BBC dressing room, um, and they got enough evidence, they felt, uh, to run a Newsnight film exposing his paedophile. To cut a very long and bitter story short, the BBC news management decided not to progress with the investigation. The two journalists believed that this was to protect a couple of Jimmy Savile tribute programs <coughs> the BBC was running in its Christmas schedule. There was, therefore, one hell of a row, which got public, and uh, ITV picked up the allegation and the witness and produced a magnificent documentary called The Other Side of Jimmy Savile, which won every award out uh, on their exposure um, strand on Channel 3. So the BBC basically missed one of the stories of the year. Uh, there was a BBC investigation led by an old friend of uh, Richard and mine, uh, Nick Pollard, the former head of Sky News, a very, a very good and, and uh, tough-minded character. And he came to the conclusion that actually the journalists were wrong there had not been a conspiracy to suppress the news night. The decision had been made in good faith. It was a flawed decision. It was a wrong decision. They should have run the story and they shouldn't have run the tributes. But they hadn't done it for dishonorable reasons. But he was very critical of what he saw as chaos and confusion in the BBC's crisis management. And hard on the heels of the Savile crisis, uh, there was this film. I can't show you a frame of this film because it's so libelous it will never be shown again. Uh, this is a Newsnight film about child abuse in North Wales, which accused a prominent Conservative politician of being a abuser. Unfortunately, their key witness um, was it was a case of mistaken identity. He had not he had identified the wrong person. The BBC had never shown him a photograph of the politician who was uh, allegedly responsible for the uh, for the abuse. Um, although the politician was not named in the, in the, uh, in the piece, the, his name slipped out through social media, and it was a man called Lord McAlpine, who then sued for libel, and the BBC had to settle. Um, and that was the story that toppled George Entwistle, and that's why he was making that um, awful apology uh, in the steps of one of the BBC's buildings. The man who's got to turn BBC journalism around is this man, James Harding. He was the editor of the Times, uh, by all accounts, an extremely good editor of the Times. Um, he's a very experienced journalist, a very serious journalist, uh, but he's got a, a job in his hands. First of all, he's going to have to deal with budget reductions. He's already cut 400 jobs. Um, 
he's going to have to cut a lot more if the BBC licence fee settlement is as we think it would be. He's got tricky relationships with regional and local, and frankly with the national press. And he's got to decide to do what to do about the BBC News' online presence. How big should it be? Um, how far can it expand without treading on the toes of other, other organisations? Last year, he produced a very thoughtful um, uh, manifesto on the future of BBC News, basically saying this. Over the next 10 years, the majority of our users will get BBC News online. They will increasingly have personalised services. They'll have news that they want. There should be a big emphasis on data journalism, on explaining the amount of data and the amount of information that's now easily available that can't be understood because people aren't spending enough time analysing it rather than just reproducing it. And he believes that the BBC has a role in strengthening local news in the UK, where there's been a precipitate decline in some parts of, of the country in the number of reporters working on local newspapers. And there's a fear that local journalism and local democracy is being undermined by the fact that there just aren't enough people on the ground going to courts, going to councils, asking the right questions, asking the questions, and doing proper news coverage. Problem with this manifesto is it poses more questions than answers. For example, what does it mean for the future of the BBC News Channel? BBC News is the most watched 24-hour channel in Britain. I think it's a good service. Is there come a point? Does there come a point sooner rather than later, perhaps, where you say, well, most people are getting their news from their mobiles, most people are getting their news on demand. We don't need to spend the money it costs to run a 24-hour news service. That's a big issue. Secondly, the BBC's relationship with the press is much more difficult than James um, would, would perhaps wish it to be. The BBC suggested they'll hire another 100 extra journalists. They'll report things like local councils and public services. These can be done in partnerships with local media. Maybe the local newspapers will provide the reporters and charge the, the BBC. It's an interesting idea. The problem is it hasn't got buy-in yet from the press. Because what the press want is basically the BBC to get their tanks off their lawns, they see it. This is the News Media Association, which is the trade association for all the newspapers. Uh, in their submission to the BBC charter review process, they say they fundamentally disagree with the BBC's plans to expand its news online. Now, there's a problem here because even if the BBC didn't want to expand its website anymore, and the website is a matter of contention between the BBC and the newspapers, clearly the BBC is heading for more and more of its service to be online. So what you're having is newspapers and broadcasters all converging on the same digital space, competing for the same eyeballs, and the newspapers don't like it, and they try to use this charter renewal process to curb the BBC's online ambitions. They're also uh, quite cross about the BBC saying there's a real problem in local journalism. They say it's for them to ma manage local journalism. I think the BBC has overstated the problem. And they believe that if the BBC is allowed to expand its online services too much, it will actually crowd out the press's presence, both locally and damage it nationally. And they've got some quite powerful people on their side. This is George Osborne, the Chancellor Exchequer on the Andy Marr show in June saying, you wouldn't want the BBC to completely crowd out national newspapers. If you look at the BBC website, it's a good product. It's becoming a bit more imperial in its ambitions. So a major pinch point in the future of the BBC is how big can that BBC online presence be? It has to be big enough to do news on demand, to meet the demand for news on mobiles, news on tablets, 
news you can use, interactive news, all the things that the digital technology is allowing us to do. And the BBC is going to want to put more and more money into that, but it's going to bring it more and more, if you're not careful, into conflict with the national newspapers. Then there's the issue of scheduling. <coughs> the Secretary of State has already said he's not sure why the BBC and ITV, this ITV is Tom Bradby, it's Hugh Edwards, BBC and ITV both run the news at 10. Again, it would take an afternoon to explain why it got to that position, but essentially ITV gave up that slot many years ago, the BBC moved into it, ITV then moved back into it, so you now have two news programmes at 10. Do you know, I actually don't think this is a problem, because the reality is, because there are two news programmes on at 10 o'clock, brutally, the audience can't really escape news. And that means six million people are still watching high-quality news <laughs> About four on the BBC and about two on ITV. So it would suit ITV for the BBC to move its news, but the net result of that I don't think would be in the public interest, because I think the end result was the BBC News' audience, say, at nine o'clock, would go down, because it would be, be against Lewis or some, some popular drama. And I don't think the ITV audience would go up very much if the new, if BBC News moved anyway. So actually, in the public interest, I think on this occasion, the Secretary of State's wrong. And also, I don't think politicians should schedule um, uh, television services. I think in general, you should leave that to the people who run the television services. And the BBC has got to work out what it does about the new players. Uh, most of you have probably seen this. is just a, 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 a slide from an absolutely fabulous Vice News documentary about Islamic State. Um, where a very brave journalist um, went into Raqqa and did about six documentaries, all about ten minutes each, of what life is like in the Islamic State. Not sure that every news organisation would have deployed somebody, given Islamic State's re re record of murdering journalists, but all credit to the journalists for doing it and coming back with some fantastic stuff. How does the BBC relate to the fact that more and more people, particularly young people, can get their news from these sorts of sources? With their approach, they're rather free and easy, quite opinionated, very much in-your-face style of journalism. It appeals to your generation. Um, the BBC needs to ensure that your generation is watching them right through your careers and lives. And they've got to decide what to do. This, this picture which I, I've always liked about Tahrir Square, there's a revolution going on and the guy has got his iPhone out and he's recording it because he's going to upload it in a moment. Um, what do we do about citizen journalism? The fact that more and more of first hand news reporting is going to be done by citizens. Um, and how do you create that? And how do you balance that against the need to have your own journalism? And I'm just going to pay a little tribute, because she died a couple of weeks ago, and she was a fantastic BBC journalist and an ITN journalist, to somebody who showed that these organizations, like ITN and the BBC, can actually adapt to the new mode. Sue Lloyd Roberts was a brilliant video journalist. She virtually invented foreign video journalism in the UK. Uh, she died a couple of weeks ago, and I'm just going to show you a little bit of one of her pieces. This is set in Homs in 2011. It gives you some idea of what a really good journalist using the technology and using the ability of a video journalist to slip in in a way that sometimes people with crews can't can get a really good story. Extraordinary report. Despite the daily death toll, the protests in Syria continue, but the tactics have changed. They held at night to minimize casualties, and back in March when they began, the protesters called for reform. Today, as the name of each atrocity and massacre carried out by the Assad regime is called out, 
the crowd called for the death of the president by hanging. These protests are taking place every night in Hamlet now with apparently unabated enthusiasm, which is impressive, not least because they've been going on for seven months now and so little has been achieved. But this, I'm reminded, is not the point. I haven't seen anything like this in my life. The old, the young, the women, everyone calling for freedom in Syria. This revolution will win, God willing. The army has encircled Homs and attack every day. People tell you they have rats, but no food. Water, power and communications are cut off in the areas where demonstrations take place. I was taken to meet Mohammed, one of the soldiers who was ordered to attack the city. We were ordered to kill everything that moved, everyone who was walking in the street. There were children who were being ordered to kill our own people, who at the end of the day are our own flesh and blood. Only on Friday the protest takes place during the day after midday prayers, and the army always attacks. In a network of field hospitals, doctors prepare for the inevitable casualties. They can no longer take the injured to the government hospitals. To our astonishment, we found that when we did that, the injured were either arrested or killed. A man would go into the hospital with a treatable injury to his hand or to his leg, and his family would be summoned to collect a corpse with a shot in the head or in the chest. Holmes may boast the title of the capital of the Syrian revolution, but it has cost them over a thousand dead. But they say they're winning. We'll carry on telling Bashar al-Assad to go, one protester tells me, even if he has to kill every one of us. See Lloyd Roberts, BBC News, Holmes. Now, back. So in contrast with that, and I hope that, that was part of a 16-minute film, an absolutely brilliant piece of journalism. I mean, that's historic footage, as if nobody had been in. That is in the revolution as it was breaking out. Nobody else could get there. So there you've got the two sides, if you like, of the new, new <coughs> The need to have really well-qualified journalists to go into areas, and the ability to make sense of material like that, which is very powerful, and is the only source you're going to get of what happened to that building is that video journalist, and to blend the two into a convincing and authoritative news service. And that's one of, the, one of the big challenges, I think, for the BBC going forward. The BBC needs to work out how it handles social media. It's already putting its material on, on Facebook. It needs to decide what it does about younger audiences. Uh, this is the 60 Minutes. I think uh, most of you have ever seen the 60 Minutes bulletin. It's on BBC Three. Seconds. 60 seconds, rather. Sorry, 60 minutes of CBS, of course. I'll show you. It only takes 60 seconds. Can we see it? There you are. Hi, I'm Tina. It's Fan on 7, the headlines in 60 seconds. He's one of three journalists jailed by an Egyptian court for spreading false news. Now Peter Brest has been freed. The Al Jazeera and former BBC reporter was in prison for a year. More misery for Andy Murray, who's beaten for the fourth time in the final of the Australian Open. World number one Novak Djokovic took it in four sets, securing his eighth Grand Slam title. Doctors say Phoenix Knights comedian Ted Robbins is doing well. He collapsed during a show in Manchester last night. His wife wants to track down the GP of the audience who sprang to his aid. Do you know your 12 times table? All children in England will be expected 
expected to by the time they're 11 under new government plans. Labour says the quality of teaching is more important. And Celtic have beaten Rangers in the first game between the bitter rivals for three years. They triumphed 2-0 in the Scottish League Cup semi-final. Lee Griffiths and Chris Commons with the goals. You're up to date. Keep it three now for some great TV mistakes. Now, the, the point about that and the social media is that the BBC's got so many different audiences now, different social groups, different age groups, different demographics. There's nothing wrong with doing the news in all sorts of different ways. There can't be just a single BBC style. What slightly worries me about one or two of the experiments is that, also, that there has to be a consistent BBC quality and also, if you like, a certain seriousness of approach. There's nothing wrong with doing a 60-minute, 60-second bulletin like that. Um, it's well written, it's well illustrated. Um, the BBC's news values are eternal, impartial, accurate, authoritative and independent. But I think it's important that the BBC gets its tone right as it tries to reach out for a new and more modern approach to its audience. And I'm just going to play at the end just one of my favourite clips from Newsnight at its best which shows, just remind you what television is talking about. It's about holding the powerful to account. Now, this is about, the background to this is very simple. In 2012, the new government um, made an astonishing U-turn on its fuel um, duty plans. It was going to put fuel up by 3p a litre, and one day, they suddenly said, no, no, we're not going to do it. No explanation. Chancellor wasn't available. He sent Chloe Smith who's a junior treasury minister, oh, sorry about that. Uh, he sent Chloe Smith um, to interview, be interviewed by Jeremy Paxman, and this is what happened. Chloe Smith, the treasury minister, is here with us. When were you told of this change of plan? Well, as a minister in the treasury, and indeed dealing with uh, fuel matters, this has been under consideration for some time. When was the decision taken? As I say, it's been under consideration for some time. The Chancellor and the Prime Minister yes, of course. So take these decisions between them. Okay, so when were you told then? I've been involved in this for some time. And <laughs> you didn't take the decision, obviously. You just said the Chancellor and the Prime Minister. Indeed. So when were you told? We had a uh, collective discussion of that uh, uh, in due course, and although I can't you know, give you the sort of full well, hall did details... Did it happen today? Processes, <laughs> I can't... I can't I can't sit here you and tell remember. you the ins and outs. It's not appropriate to tell you the ins and outs. Why isn't it appropriate? You're here. You're coming here to defend a change of policy, and you can't even tell me when you were told what the change of policy was. Because, as a minister in the Treasury, I've been involved in discussions for some time. As I've said to you, the chance for the Prime Minister to take those decisions. I'm not going to be able to give you a running commentary on exactly who said I'm not asking for a running commentary. I'm asking for a statement of facts about when you were told. You were told sometime today, clearly. Was it before lunch or after lunch? I'm not going to give you a comment on who says what and when. That's no, about how I just want to know when you were told. I'm not even going to ask you who told you, but when were you told what the change of policy was? This has been on discussion for some weeks. Why did the Principal Secretary know about it yesterday? It's important that the government, <coughs> excuse me, it's very important that government uh, acts on concerns that hears, and as I, as I said about who, about who, what and when, you know, the government will make its policy and importantly come to isn't, isn't the cost of petrol in people's cars a matter of legitimate interest to the Transport Secretary, who didn't know yesterday? Of course it's, it's a matter of legitimate interest to households 
and businesses. But, of course, as you know, mm. taxes for the Chancellor, and in this case the Chancellor and the Prime Minister uh, took the decision. Oh, we all understand that. Good. And where do people are competent? <laughs> I think it's valuable to help real people in this way, and I do think that is valued mm. by people who drive. Okay, thanks, Mike. Thank you. <laughs> now, the point about pop being very amusing is that's actually what journalism is about. It's about asking uncomfortable questions, not being fogged off, being held to account. And the BBC is an enormously important part in British democracy, and it has a role internationally as well, as to continue to ask those questions um, without fear or favour. And I guess my final thought is care about the BBC's independence. It's still the most trusted news in the UK, the most used, used news in the UK. It's still respected worldwide, but if it's not independent, it's no use to anyone. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.